So, favoritism. What's the big deal? You may have thought this as we looked at the passage this morning. It may have been an issue facing the church at the time, but surely it's, it doesn't really affect us now, does it? We, we're not racist or ageist or sexist in this society. Those that are are, are shunned. There are countless initiatives in our society to, to actively remind us not to discriminate. Isn't that all that James is hoping for when he wrote these verses? Surely we're in the clear this morning. It's only going to take a few minutes and then we'll be out getting ready for our Sunday lunch. So given all that, why are we only looking at seven verses? Surely we've got enough time to get through the rest of chapter two. Some of you may be thinking this. I certainly was as I was preparing. I thought I'd take a nice big chunk of James and get through it really quick. But as I looked more and more into these verses, as I looked closer into the underlying matters at hand, I realized more and more just how relevant this passage is today to us. The context of these verses, uh, the book was written by James, possibly the brother of Jesus, and he was writing to the churches around Phoenicia, uh, Cyprus, and Syrian Antioch. It's a little map of the area. It's the first of the so-called general letters, so it wasn't addressed to a specific audience, which means it's addressed to every audience, which is ideal for us. But despite the generality of the audience, James still writes a very personal letter. He's very pastoral in the way that he writes. He uses the term brethren or dear brethren or variations of the same some 15 times throughout this letter, and it's only a short letter. He clearly cares deeply about these Christian brothers and sisters. The whole book is, is very practical. I'm not sure how familiar you are with the book, but it's, it's one that can really be put into practice in, today, uh, in today's day and age. The situation for the churches at the time is likely to be one of fairly active persecution, so we have to get that frame of mind. It's likely to have been written around the time of the stoning of Stephen that we read about in Acts 7. We see uh, as we start the letter, there's an introduction in chapter 1, verses 2 through to 11, and it emphasizes patience and in prayer, finding joy in trials and remembering God's loving control, how we need to develop perseverance through the exercising of faith. Importantly, in verse 6 of chapter 1, we read how the churches then and how us now need to strive towards an undivided heart, solely setting it on Christ. We need to remain steadfast, looking on towards the prize of the crown of life, bearing the cross for a while to claim the crown for eternity. Then as the book goes on, verses 13 to 18, we see that God is good All the time. God is not a vengeful and spiteful dictator who craves affection, nor is he an impotent God who has no control. No, God is holy and he is good all the time, particularly, maybe even especially, at the cross. Though the work is tough, we here have the privilege of working with our good God in the here and now. On to verses 19 to 27, we see the wisdom of being doers of what we hear. We have an encouragement to pay attention, 
to put into practice what we read and hear in the scriptures. As chapter 1 draws to a close, verse 27, we have examples of the practice of faith exceeding the practice of religion, going above and beyond just religion. And that's really the main issue of the book of James. We're being pointed away from the external practice of religious, legalistic law-keeping to the internal truths of an active faith. And it's with this mindset that James continues. Now these verses, 1 to 7, are the first of three parts of of chapter 2. The first starts as the incompatibility of favoritism with faith. uh, Verse 8 to 13 shows the law of love or obedient faith. And then verses 14 to 16 go on to show us deeds or outworking of faith. But we're only looking at the first seven verses. And the structure of these first seven is, as the screen says, it's verse seven will set out a problem for us. Verse two to three will give us an example. Verse four will give us a verdict on that example. And then finally, verses seven, sorry, five to seven will provide two further reasons why favoritism is just not compatible with a faith in Christ. It's under those headings that we're going to look at these verses. So let's start at the start with verse one. If you like to keep it open in front of you, then you can make sure that I'm sticking to the text, which is always a good thing to do. As we start in verse one, my brothers, as James starts, it's that common address that I mentioned James is using so frequently in this letter. As believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, don't show favoritism. Now, even as we start, we need to focus on James's specific wording and emphasis. There is some confusion in the commentaries about the translation of verse 1, particularly the translation of the description of Christ and his glory. The NIV states, as we read, as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, I've lost my place there, as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, don't show favoritism. And the emphasis there is of the Lord Jesus being described as glorious. The King James Version has have not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with respect of persons. Meaning don't hold them with a similar amount of gravitas. The emphasis here is of the King James Version is, is Christ being the Lord of glory. Whilst it's closer to the original meaning, the original words, it doesn't quite capture the gravity of what is being written. The sentence literally translates like this. Not with favouritisms, Must you hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glory? The point that James is making is essentially this. Christ Jesus is the glory of God. He is the glory of God. And it's only once you start to see Christ as he should be seen that we realise that this instruction to show no favouritism is just so obvious. The very glory of God Jesus Christ, born as a baby in a shed, raised as a manual labourer, and then finally crucified on a cross. But still, the glory of God came to earth to do all of those things. But it's only once we see Jesus as he is, as he was in eternity past, we start to gain perspective. It's surely just an emphasis of scale, isn't it? When you see the riches of God's glory... God who spoke the stars into being, who breathed the life of breath into mankind. 
yet who came into his fallen creation, when you see the riches of the glory of God that is Jesus, when you see how far God has gone for each of, each of us, you see just how far short of the glory of God we've fallen. As Nick McQuaker, who I know some of you here know from Christ Church, he puts it like this. Once you have been dazzled by the glory of Christ, the riches of this world cannot dazzle us anymore. There's a a definition of favoritism on the screen there. It, It goes like this. Favoritism translates as the practice of giving unfair preferential treatment to one person or group at the expense of another don't know if you can make out the pitch there, but there's a, a little baby bird who is clearly being treated unpreferentially at the expense of his sibling. The direct translation that we've got here actually has favoritism in the plural. Therefore, we are really instructed to avoid any earthly ranking of people. There is no room in the body of Christ for any racism ageism, sexism, or any form of partiality. It's worth pointing out that James here is writing to a body of believers. He's writing to a church, just like us. And what is the church? If not the very family of God, with God as our father and Christ as our brother. So this instruction is really just to emulate our brother, isn't it? It's really to emulate our brother Christ in his attitude. What was his attitude? Hebrews 2 verse 11 says this, both the one who makes men holy, Christ, and the the ones who are made holy, us, are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. Put it back in its context. Jesus, God's glory, came to earth and is not ashamed to call us brothers How can we then show partiality or be ashamed to relate to our our fellow brothers who are also bought by Christ's sacrifice? How dare we? There's no room for favoritism in the family of God. James goes on in verses 2 and 3. Follow with me if you will. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes. And a poor man in shabby clothes or jeans also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, oh, here is a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, oh, you sit there or sit on the floor by my feet. Now, it's important to understand, actually, when we're reading these verses, that the audience wasn't necessarily all rich, as we might impose from our own culture. It wasn't that all of these people were people of wealth, and then the poorer people were, were just frowned upon. No, these were fellow people who were of the same financial standing. Now, the point being made is actually one of association. There would be those who were probably not much better off financially than those who were being judged to those who were judging. But they were ascribing status to the financial wealth. Notice how the rich visitor is described in these verses. All the items that are mentioned are external, tangible, visible. The gold rings denote wealth. The more rings you wore, the more wealth you were perceived to have had. 
the point being made is that as these people would come in, there would be a scramble, a fervor, to, to offer these people the best position and therefore be seen to be doing a favor with potentially the expectation that you would get something back in the future. Don't know if any of you have seen the Godfather movies, but it's reminiscent of that. If you know them, the idea that on the date of, this, uh, of his daughter's wedding, you could go to the Godfather and ask him for a favor. And he would say, someday, and that day may never come, I will call upon you to do a service for me. It's that kind of expectation that you do something good and you'll get something back in return. The expectation was that that favor would be called back later on. We're not a million miles away from that now, though, are we? It's not a foreign concept to us. In the run-up to the election, as I'm sure you're aware, one of the main talking points was, well, what would happen if there was a coalition government? If a coalition government was sought, there would be some form of negotiation. Certain policies would be traded with the expectation of being on the receiving end, hopefully, of the others. But the question is this. Well, what's so wrong with that? What's so bad about that negotiation? Well, the problem with that is it only works when you're in a position of power. In the example that we're reading about here, there is no power. There's no bargaining chip for these people of the lower perceived social standing. So they're ignored, despised, or perhaps even worse, hated. Verse 4 goes on, spelling out the issue. The words uh, discrimination is, is popularly used in today's society to explain the inappropriateness of, uh, of distinctions between different people. Discrimination in the workplace is a, is a massive issue for uh, legal teams and HR policy setters. But the issue for these brothers and for us here is actually much closer to home. The problem refers back to chapter 1, verse 6, where I mentioned it earlier. There's a man in verse 6 of he's being of divided loyalties. He's in, in prayer particularly. He's being swept back and forth by the winds of life. Just like these people, the parallel here is that these believers would say that they are truly valuing the glory of Christ. They're in a, a church meeting in effect. However, in practice, as per this example, they were in fact valuing the external, valuing the worldly wealth, the worldly glory and the worldly status. Now, the issue here goes much deeper, much deeper than the legal issues of discrimination. This goes right to the core of what value we put on people as we view them. Now, were these Christians putting themselves in positions of judgment over their fellow brothers? Come to think of it, do we? Do we put ourselves in some kind of ranking system, even among the, in the fellowship here? It's a serious verdict from what James says. After all, he refers to them as evil judgments. Or do we see the church family just as that? Family members. Those people to your right and to your left in this congregation here, at the, the 9.30 meeting as well, those people your front and back they are your brothers and sisters now I know that as I get older the concept of, of family members being added to a family loses its impact I have 16 nieces and nephews when the first one came along it was quite exciting when the 16th came along a little less so but if you look around yourself now these are your family members Mary Dan 
Chris, you guys are my family members. How can we not be excited about that? At this point, if you're like me, you've, you've might feel like you've gone seven rounds with James and you've not ended up in a terribly good state. Um, but in the last section that we've got, there is thankfully an encouragement. There's two reasons in verses five to seven. Two further reasons why this distinction between the poor and the wealthy is such an inappropriate basis for judgment. Again, as we've seen previously, James is quick to call his readers to attention. Listen up, he writes, and that's not just poetic license on my part to ensure I have your attention for the last couple of minutes. As we mentioned, it's, it's likely that the, the large part of this congregation weren't financially rich. They were probably financially poor. And it's to these, James writes, Don't seek the approval of the wealthy of the world. You have the favour already of him whose wealth is eternal. Again, drawing us away from the, the legalistic religion at the end of chapter 1, James points out that it's those who are poor in the eyes of the world who are blessed to be rich in faith. We read 1 Corinthians 1, 26-31. might be helpful to turn back to it again. It's on page 1145, I believe. And it reads like this. Brothers... Think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of the world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for, for us wisdom from God. That is, our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Now, from reading those verses, can we hold any credibility whatsoever to the thought that God has any kind of pecking order for those in, who, in this life, have material wealth? In fact, when we look at the greatest gift that God gives us, isn't it even our experience today? Isn't the gospel, the gospel so readily received by those who are poor in the eyes of the world? Think of the explosion of Christianity in India and the African nations, the third world, areas where there is such poverty, yet the gospel is received and the church is growing. Yet, compare that with the areas of increased wealth, such as here in the West, the gospel is just not welcome. What I'm trying to say is this. God has no regard for financial, worldly, or perhaps particularly religious status. If he did, we'd all be without hope, wouldn't we? In respect of religion particularly, even our best gifts are as filthy rags in front of God's holiness. In respect of our, our financial or worldly status... What use does God have for our money? God who spoke the stars into being. And the poor seem to have a special place in God's plans. God's, uh, Jesus himself, in quoting Isaiah, says in the Gospel of Luke, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. Not the elite of society. But in our passage, despite this exhortation that we've read from Jesus, verse 6 continues with the rebuke. 
uh, from James to these brothers. It is the poor that these brothers have been dishonoring. They've literally been despising them through their actions. And James goes on to point out the foolishness of this worldly view as the verse goes on. It would appear that there is some precedence of the poor being taken to court, uh, probably because of outstanding debts. And verse 7, to round it off, James finishes with linking up the faith and deeds aspect of what we've been looking at to give a direct application. Now, the impact of the bad treatment of the poor isn't first and foremost a matter of legalism. After all, it may have been the case that the rich, the money lenders, the, the, the people giving out loans, the landowners, they, were, they may well have been entitled to their money back. But it's the principle that's missing from their actions. By ignoring the instruction to take care of the widows and orphans that is at the end of, of chapter 1, verse 27, it's those that, that can't take care of themselves, including the poor. The, no, the rich, through their treatment, were proving where their hearts were set. And it was by proving this, they were proving their rejection of Jesus' words. This is why James closes with such strong words of how the rich are blaspheming, turning against and ignoring the word of God. Now, after all of that, surely the application for us today is quite straightforward. It's just the case of taking care of the poor, right? Well, let me pose you a question. If a homeless person and, say, David Beckham, or someone that you hold in high standing, because you may not hold David Beckham in high standing... If those two people came into the church today, one through that door, one through that door, which, which one would you go to? Which one would you go and try and speak to? Well, how about another question? And this one's probably more searching. Why do you sit where you sit? When you come to a church meeting like this, why do you sit where you sit? And I'm not saying that you can't sit where you sit because there are very valid reasons why some people sit in certain seats. But what I mean to point out is this. Have we grown comfortable with the status quo of sharing our lives with a few comfortable people rather than treating the church as the family that it's supposed to be? Have we developed preference to some, even within our fellowship, at the expense of others? In our hearts, in our hearts, do we still seek the worldly rich out? rather than seeking to see each and every person saved as God does? Do we even, in the very worst case, do we even save the message of salvation for those that we are most comfortable with by thinking, oh, I'd like to see that person in heaven? Or do we seek to tell all that we can about the good news of Christ, that through us, weak and poor as we are, some might come to know the riches of God's mercy? at work, at the bus stop, at the local bingo club, whatever it is that you do. In your spare time, do you, and do I, seek out the worldly poor? Or do I seek to associate myself with the worldly rich? I'm sure you can see why we only stuck to the first seven verses of chapter two. And that, good, that encouragement that I promised is right there in verse five. Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those that love him? Are you here one of those that recognizes your own poverty when confronted with the, the God of glory? 
Do you love Jesus? Do you love him and seek to follow his example? Because if you do, you can rest assured that you are rich in faith and your eternal glorious inheritance is assured. Can we not as a family spur each other on in this? But more, into, more importantly than spurring each other on, because it's very easy to tell someone else where they're going wrong, more important than spurring others, should we not search our own hearts to see whether there is someone we should be speaking to or someone that we should be caring for? God, give us the grace that we might try and put these things into practice in our lives.